Welcome to the Ether. Today is Monday, March 13th, 2023. Today on the Ether, Achepe Space, the Sommelier Deep Dive featuring Zaki. Let's take a listen. And while we wait for folks to come on, maybe um, it'd be fun to kind of get your uh, brief impression about this situation with uh, like USDC and what it means to. Uh, just I mean, I'm our, sure this is like ecosystem. A, I mean, so, you know, I've, uh, I've been, you know, I've been talking to Circle a lot lately. Um, you know, we use USDC as a big part of real yield USD for some. Um, I've been, I'm very involved in Noble, uh, bringing native USDC to Cosmos. been talking to Circle a lot about CCTP. Um, I, I'm generally, you know, a fan of USDC bull, you know, USDC to $2. That's the future. so yeah like i I guess they they sent a message out that they're looking for developing a strategy to create a more 24 7 remittance process which they they announced a new they announced a new partner it's gotten lost in just like all of the things that have happened i mean it's like it's it's, i mean honestly christian like, I don't know, crypto has been so crazy this week because I just got, I kind of thought like, you know, okay, like last year was crazy. And then I was like, okay, what more can happen? And like, right. Um, um, and, uh, you know, we can talk a little bit more about that. But um, yeah, I, I think the, of all these things as kind of white swans, not black swans in the sense that um, they're large magnitude events, but they're known they can happen. It's not like unknown unknowns like a black swan would traditionally be considered. But their magnitude is sufficient enough and like um, we rely upon these things to work well enough that especially in DeFi, you know, if you've got positions that would get yeah. affected, I, you're going to be pretty pissed if you lost money, right? So I was surprised at the level of irrationality and the volume at which irrationality happened. Um, so, okay. So although I just would say like the calls, the, the negativity towards USDC was not as much is in other instances because I think that like the ETH and BTC crowd are a little bit worried about flooding their own bags to some extent. So I noticed a lot less, like I noticed a lot more calm among ETH folks than I yeah. would have expected. Like what compared to how much ire they threw at, say for example, Luna UST, you know, and yeah. and that kind of thing. But oh, I don't know. We'll see. Okay, so to, to a couple of pieces. One is. Uh, Circle did announce that Cross River is going to be their new is going to be a a twenty four seven remittance platform for them, um, and it seems like Cross River is is stepping into the um, at least some portion of the of the institutional business now that um, you know post uh, um, 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 post signature. Um, 
you know, that yeah, whole situation. Yeah, to, to get cash into the system, basically. Uh, yeah, to, you know, allow for, because, you know, like this, this problem of, okay, it's the weekend and, or it's the night and in the, in the U.S. and you can't, you know, there are no redemptions or mints, um, you know, like, you know, exacerbates the problem that like we were seeing. Well, especially because um, uh, smart contracts aren't set up to be timed for U.S. banking hours too. So it's like, Correct. If you have an event happen after hours, then and the smart contract liquidates some position that you have. Like, no, granted, like some people like myself, I benefited from this de decoupling because I went and basically bought USDC and um, like I fully expected it to go back up again. So I took that risk and I armed it essentially. Um, yeah. so some people gain, but some people clearly would lose depending on the type of position you have. So it is important for this sort of thing like when people advertise a stable coin, it really has to be absolutely stable. Otherwise you can't uh, build, um, you really can't build uh, composability on top of things if they're not working as advertised, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I think we could, I think there's like definitely space for, but I, you know, at the on the other hand, like, you know, as long as our real world asset stable coins are grounded in, the banking system, the banking system is periodically unstable, right? Like the, right. the the banking system is not stable in the way that it should be. And like, you know, could we like, it's, it's sort of interesting. Although, it's sort of, it, like one of, one yeah. of the aspects of this whole period that's interesting is that there is like a whole, that there's like a, a like an almost like a modernization cycle now that's kicking off in the in the banking system in a in an interesting way where like um uh you know like mercury announced uh you know a new product that has like three million dollars of insurance on on a on essentially like a cash on a, on a cash storage product um you know the the general you know the general advice for a long time has always been okay don't you know don't store your entire company treasury uh, in a bank account, use treasury bonds, um, you know, do various other things with it. But, you know, there's always been like ops overhead for that and stuff like that. And it's been interesting to see. I think, I think we're, we're you're, uh, yeah, you're going to see fintechs like stepping into that now. All of that background stuff aside, I think the thing is when pe when a retail user uses USDC, and this was shown on Voyager, it's shown on Coinbase, anywhere retail users get exposure, they don't realize that they're getting exposure to not like a underlying essentially usdc is essentially a type of security in a sense it's like a coupon that has a certain value based on the underlying holdings and you know i think retail users don't realize that they're adding that layer of risk oftentimes and i think uh you're never going to teach all of retail that which is why it's so important for things to be super super stable like natively obviously and they're working on all that but um anyway just a side thing like it's a, like there's all sorts of problems to be solved and hopefully people are working on them. But um, anyway, and now that the gangs, everyone's here, I think uh, we can get started. Uh, I wanted to bring on like uh, Zaki to talk about sommelier and see what um, this is all about. And I'm going to like play the newbie here. Um, and uh, like, let's assume I know nothing about what's going on because I probably don't. And maybe we can start from like scratch in a sense. Um, my understanding generally is that um, the sommelier blockchain, SOMM, the token, by the way, I, 
I don't have any um, specific specific financial incentive one way or the other for having this conversation, by the way. So no conflicts of interest or anything like that, just to sort of bring that out. I just want to like genuinely uh, talk about this from a user and like see if this is a blockchain that would help me do some of the trading I want to do and things like that. So just purely from a perspective, like curiosity. But um, my understanding is that the the chain is basically a is it a plain Jane Cosmos chain or did you guys do like a lot of interesting things to, to modify it or what, like what are, what is this blockchain for and maybe some of the basic tech? Yeah. Okay. So let, let, let's talk about um, a, a, a little bit of the like technical nitty gritty of it. Um, so, you know, Sommelier has always been this like weird uh, turducken, I think to a lot of, people they're like what is this um because it's you know the the som token is a is a cosmos native token it it primarily trades right now on cosmos dexes uh though there is an erc20 token also um but then like you go to use som and you're like oh connect your metamask uh what is this um so basic idea of som is what we wanted to do is create a trading, like essentially like an aggregated trading platform, you know, something that is similar to like in, what in trad five behaves like a, a fund of some kind, a mutual fund, a hedge fund, um, an ETF. Um, and, you know, a big part of, well, why, why, why are funds so heavily regulated? Well, there's like a couple of things. One is there's this challenge of, um, of, you know, custody, like you put your money into a fund, the people in the, who run the fund could hypothetically, you know, uh, run away with it. So you need to, you need to have regulation and traditional finance to prevent that. Uh, and then the second piece is, you know, when you're, when you're, you know, calculating out, you know, management fees, performance fees, there's an enormous opportunity for deceit and fraud. And all of these things are very heavily regulated. So the thought experiment for SOM was, Hey, like, what if we just, you know, I've been working on blockchain technologies in general since 2014. Um, so like Christy and me, who like co-founded Sommelier um, and have been, you know, driving things forward, we're basically sitting there thinking, okay, what if you could actually make both of those systems sort of decentralized non-custodial? So what if you could make all of the like fee payment logic basically built into a smart contract and then um, uh, uh, you could use uh, and then you could make all of the trading logic like truly decentralized in the sense that there were like meaningful checks and balances, um, you know, moving away from this model of, you know, any sort of custody. And so basically sommelier is like what we have deployed with sommelier is a very advanced version of both of these concepts. We have all of the fee payment logic, like, you know, uh, pro rata paying management fees, paying performance fees, all embedded into smart contract language on Ethereum. When you, uh, you know, uh, no matter what kind of position you hold in DeFi, you uh, put money into a SOM platform, it, uh, into the SOM, it like calculates uh, net asset value uh, atomically, uh, computes your LP shares, uh, gives you back your LP shares. Again, you want to take out, take money out. It's going to compute what fees you owe to the strategist and the platform, uh, subtract those when you withdraw your funds. Um, all of that is happening 
Uh, and then what um, the Cosmos platform lets you do, which is basically is the way I view the Cosmos platform is is like one of the things you can do with the Cosmos chain is like treat it almost more like a um, an uh, like a coordination layer for a series of validators. So what SOM does is it really like uh, empowers the validators to play a governance and intermediating role um, in the um, in the uh, in the execution of the smart contracts. So the validator, so like strategists don't directly talk to smart contracts or don't even directly talk to the Smilly HA. They talk to the validator set. Um, Every validator on SOM has to expose, uh, like a, a like essentially a network port um, for for the strategists to communicate with them. They get messages from the strategists. The strategists are processed by an application called Steward, um, and then that results in the validator sending messages on chain. When the validators agree, those messages are going to be passed over. So what we've done is we've taken. We are not a vanilla Cosmos chain. We are. Uh, running this uh, application called Cork, which allows validators to agree on strategy executions, and we have our own um, sort of version of the of the Gravity Bridge um, that is used as a token bridge, primarily in the Gravity context. But we use it primarily for message passing and for bridging SOB tokens um, over to Ethereum. Um, and you know, we, like one of the things that having this like steward layer of the system is that we could actually protect users from strategist from like from a malicious strategist in ways that are just impossible to do on um, on the on the uh, on the smart contract layer. We can restrict what parameters that can be called on a smart contract. We can uh, have the validators simulate strategist smart contract calls against like third-party APIs, like tenderly. Uh, we can do like all kinds of like, like fast automated analysis of strategy calls that are just like, you could never do in a smart contract. There's no concept of being able to do this in a smart contract. So it's just like, you know, we've, uh, we've been running this thing for a while, but you know, and we have, you know, as we, as we keep finding uh, like cool things we could do with the architecture that just wouldn't be possible with any sort of conventional strategy management architecture. So like, let's kind of bring it down to sort of like a super like basic user level kind of question set here. So I, if you go to familiar.finance, you can see the different um, strategies that are available yeah. there now. Um, say for example, like your, your Bitcoin. Now would these be considered like vaults or what do you call these strategies? Like, so we call I, them strategies or sellers. Yeah. So if I have like, um, like say I have a thousand bucks today, I'm just making up a number here. Um, and I want yep. to enter like this, uh, the Bitcoin strategy, maybe like walk through, what am I doing yeah. with my money? Where is it going? What's in actual Bitcoin somewhere? Yeah, yeah, well, and let's all of talk that. about maybe it. So, just yeah, like yeah. Simple, so, like, so there's a strategy yeah. called Steady BTC. Um, from a team called um, Patash Digital. Um, so we have, you know, third-party platform. The so Seven Cs is kind of the spit-out strategist from Sibelier. Patash um, is a one is one of the uh, Patash and Cleargate are two third-party strategists. We have other third-party strategists who we're onboarding. Um, so okay, 
you want to you, you you're like steady BTC for Potash Digital. That looks like a great strategy for me. I want to have some Bitcoin exposure, uh, but I don't want to manage trading it myself. So you put your thousand dollars in. Your thousand dollars immediately just sits in USDC. So you put in money as USDC goes in the USDC. It sits there as USDC. Um, Potash. So it's sitting in a smart contract. That's a strategy. You have an LP share of that. You have like what we call a strategy token. You have a strategy token of that, um, of that claim on that strategy. Um, the strategy token basically has a price um, that is the redemption value, like uh, what you can redeem it back into either USDC or into, uh, 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 or into Bitcoin, depending on what's in the position right now. Um, and so you're, you, you put your $1,000 in, now you don't have to do anything anymore. You just have to sit there, kind of look at your redemption price over time, how it's changing. We showed on the on the app of Somalia Finance. So just um, like but, for, for everyone to kind of understand, basically what he's saying is is your your, your money <laughs> is sort of a, a place where in the background, Bitcoin is being bought and sold. So if like, let's say, for example, today, Bitcoin's, you know, price is, you know, 24K or whatever it is today. And it goes to, let's say, you know, 30K, you know, on the way up, it may be putting in like a trailing stop or, you know, it, it wants to capture the upside, but it wants to sort of lock in profit at some level. And then if it sells the Bitcoin, then it's going to try to buy it back at a lower price um, on the way down. And maybe we can get into a little bit about how that happens. But really, the my understanding yeah. is the way that this works, because you're getting a redemption token, you don't have a taxable event, technically speaking, every time Bitcoin gets bought and sold because you're, you're, the coin price is going up like an ETF would go up. The, the trading is happening in the background, but as far as the blockchain, when you're on Somalia is concerned, there's not a transaction being listed every time Bitcoin gets bought and sold. Therefore, um, you don't have to pay taxes each time that occurs. This is similar to kind of an ETF or kind of a vault strategy that I've seen on a lot of other platforms. It's tax efficient, which is really helpful in many ways. Um, and you don't have a gajillion transactions to also like report, which just can be a pain in the ass, even if you didn't have yeah. to, even if you didn't have a tax loss or benefit, the reporting when it comes to bot trading, like on grid bots and things like that on KuCoin, Binance, whatever, those are very tax inefficient in many ways. Um, so these kind of vault strategies are like, can be where the, where the actual trading happens in the background in a sense can be very beneficial from that perspective, which which um and, and also vault tokens can be interesting because they can be used theoretically for treasuries of um like i don't know if ibc is going to allow you to, to to manage and move vault tokens but in theory a dow in, on one chain in theory in the future could have access to this vault and have carry the vault token and just have it in you know a treasury for example and it just goes up in value over time so there's some interesting applications for this sort of thing which i'm interested in yeah, absolutely. Like, um, all right. So one is, yes, I mean, you can, uh, you can bring, uh, uh, vault tokens over any of the bridging protocols right now into IBC land. Um, so you can do it, you can use the Axel or, or like the gravity bridge. Um, there, you know, uh, what, okay. Well, well, let's like talk about it. So not tax advice from me. Um, but I will say that, like, again, like, from our point of view, 
you are what you're holding is an asset that represents the trading strategy. So you have this volatility trading strategy that State BTC has tried to do, where it is trying to capture the upside of things like Bitcoin volatility um, back into the value of the token. Um, and what the strategist is doing is they're sending signals to the validator set. The validator set is agreeing. They're agreeing on trades. The trades are typically executed via Uni V3, but we actually have um, a lot more support for various uh, trading platforms coming, um, things like Matcha and One Inch and uh, um, coming down the pipeline. So there's just constantly adding new functionality available to the strategists. Um, and that's the idea. The idea is like a strategist goes out, it tries to, and so right now the most successful strategy on SOM is called Real Yield USD, which is a stable coin uh, yield farming strategy. Um, but what it's doing basically is extracting yield from um, market, mostly market making the, uh, the Uniswap uh, UDV3 um, um, USDC, um, USDT, one in five basis point pools. Um, though when, especially when the market gets super volatile, like it just happened, uh, it, it goes into the lending protocol, which uh, were also very profitable over the, uh, over the, over the weekend. Yeah, usually you don't have this much, obviously, volatility within stable coins, but I imagine that would have been yeah. I mean, usually, lucrative. Oh, like we do, like you, uh, you know, historically uh, for the last month, real yield USD has been doing about six point five percent base yield um, on uh, on in on stables on Ethereum, which is you know without token incentives, which has been you know a super high value. Um, I'm really looking forward to some sort of trading strategy or um, uh, non-stable strategy um, uh, uh, coming out. You know, I was very excited though about strategies on Euler. Uh, we we just finished getting audited our Euler adapter, and now Euler is no more. Uh, it's pretty sad, <laughs> um, but at least it, it better before we launched. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, like this is so like I view SOM has like basically three roles to play. Like one role is, you know, give you exposure to this kind of trading um, and like some sort of trading strategy without um, having to like do it yourself, have lots of transactions that you execute yourself, etc. Um, the next piece of it is SOM is SOM is like, you know. There are yield sources that are that require being able to adapt to the market, um, and um, uh, uh, and you know that is another powerful use case for SOM. Um, a third use case for SOM is really just enhancing any any DeFi protocol um, because if you look at like you know we've we've been looking at lots of DeFi protocols where either you know maximizing your yield requires like looping or um or or like frequently rebalancing between multiple multiple vaults that are of the same asset pair or the same asset um and like all of that stuff can be made just like very efficient users don't have to think about it um don't have to pay gas for it you know the protocol is just handling all of this um on the som side yeah I mean, a lot of times just the tax efficiency alone makes it worth it much less like the relative <laughs> low fee efficiency of you know, like blockchain-based systems done in vault formats. When you do these things on live order books, the other problem is is that the fee per trade gets to be a problem. Whereas when you execute this in large scale um, in a vault format, 
all of these can be done with, you have a lot more money transacting, but with a lot smaller number of individual transactions. When people try to do this individually, that's how KuCoin or whoever makes a bunch of money because the, the execution fees for every single trade, like on a bot trading uh, system is where they make their money, like anywhere from like 0.3% or lower would be considered decent per trade. Um, but like, what kind of efficiency are you guys getting in the background as far as just like, you know, per trade, uh in the background like would you would you say the fees are running um right now i mean inclusive, this is on ethereum right yeah um i mean the like the reality of the situation is like none of the trading strategies have like scaled that well um in terms of user adoption yet um and so we haven't seen super high efficiencies there um, but on real yield USD, like there's, it's been, it's the, the efficiencies are phenomenal. Like once you get into like, these kind of like five to $10 million plus, uh, uh, strategies, like they become very, uh, they become very efficient. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're able to tap, tap into the, to like, you know, right now we're, you know, we're focused on, you know, the, or we're focused on assets that are very liquid. Um, and you know, the fees are and like, you know, the fees are very cheap, um, in terms of, uh, you know, what you have to pay on, on, on Uniswap to swap them. Um, and then we're getting increasing amounts of support through new adapters, um, for places where we could trade, uh, less liquid assets, but, you know, keep fees low. Yeah. Like one, one of the types of, and again, it's, it's hard to advocate for a whole lot more different vault types when the when user levels are down and things like that. But like some of the kinds of interesting vaults tend to be things that like uh, plug in different types of highly volatile assets. Like take, for example, Adam tends to be super volatile. Um, one of the benefits of that volatility um, is that you can like, you can extract from that volatility in these strategies. So let's say, for example, I had a, I don't know, like an Adam, usdc um rebalancer bot or something like that or i had a um like a grid bot type of strategy um you could basically have all of the trading happen in the background um and you can even do a basket of things like i don't know adam and you know maybe stargaze or something and then bitcoin or something and you could actually every time you know like adam goes you know unbalances in the pool and becomes you know maybe one percent more expensive than the rest of the pool then that would sell some of that and buy the other coins. And, and then it does that back and forth over and over again. So you can take the volatility and sort of like extract that for the user as part of the strategy. Um, I like the idea that like it, the vault kind of concept and um, you know, right before the whole like UST crash, um, there were quite a few of these kind of things that were getting built by protocols on Terra. And it was helpful because it was really, really cheap transactional fees because it was on a Cosmos chain. And the yeah. um, if, if it hadn't been for the DPEG and blah, 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 we all know what happened. The, the interesting strategies that were coming out were really about to get really fun. Um, unfortunately, that didn't happen. But I think there's a lot of room for that. And the, the tricky thing I find is that like the end user is not oftentimes sure what's a useful product, honestly. Like most people in crypto, like don't know how to make money in it very well. <laughs> like that's just a fact. And when you produce yeah. something really useful, they don't even understand why it's useful and why they should be considering using it. So 
you know, marketing things, these things can be tricky, but I do know there's a fair amount of bot trading volume and such on the major centralized exchanges. Um, and you can't get things like vault vaults on central exchanges. It's real frustrating from a tax perspective. I think like the, what you guys are doing, there's a lot of interesting, uh, like vaults or strategies I'd be interested in using. Um, what, what are some of the, I guess, risks of your system? Like, uh, like where could something go wrong in theory, I guess? Yeah, no. Um, so we think of our risks. Um, so there's like the certain risk. Okay. So like generalized risk is um, we've, we've done a lot of work to try and minimize sort of the, let's say cross chain risk. So like we don't, we like, at least in the current ver version of the product, no assets are ever bridged. Um, so like you're not exposed to like bridge risk. We designed the system to make, you know, it's so that the like smart contracts themselves are non-custodial, the validator set goes down, et cetera, the chain halts. People should be still able to get most of their funds out. There are some exceptions to this um, a little bit because um, um, like, for instance, if we're holding an LP, a liquidity provider position to do UD3, um, it's, it's not actually directly extractable from the smart contract. There has to be a rebalance into uh, like one of the, uh, like a lending pool position before users can directly withdraw. Um, there are little things like that. Um, but on the whole, like we tried to minimize those risks, but there's like, there is smart contract risk um, uh, in, in the platform. You know, there's always, there's always a risk of business logic errors, other errors in the smart contract. Um, we spend quite a bit of time, um, uh, you know, our audit strategy has been like build a, right now, a single deep relationship with an auditor. Um, so we've been working with macro, um, for more than six months. We really like them. They do. We think they do an extremely good job. Um, and that's been our strategy. If, um, like have you guys, have you, you know, and I, in the, in the lifetime of the, the chain and the strategies, have, have you guys found any errors that had to be corrected so far like what's been the track record there um there there have been a few errors that we've been able to fix like one of the things that we can do with the strategies um is is like the biggest surface area for errors is is these things we call the adapters um which are like basically like how the strategy does nav calculations and connects to other chains so we have been able to do a little bit of like swapping out things we haven't we've yet to find any vulnerabilities that would have caused loss of loss of funds but there have been things that could potentially be like griefing attacks or um potentially like free like get funds like temporarily stuck in the in the in the um uh strategy that kind of stuff um but nothing you know we we keep uh we keep uh we keep uh making improvements and stuff like that and we are we've been able to like swap out adapters um yeah uh in in and strategies under the hood. I think it's just important for people to realize that when we talk about risks, we're not just talking about risk of like what happens if you know your your strategy's value goes up or down or doesn't perform as well as you thought it would. That would be quite yeah. like more the financial risk. There's also the there's 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 just DeFi smart contracts. Yeah, there's smart contrast the contract risk. And then we we that. we we interface with protocols, right? And you know, as I was saying, you know, we were. We had, we just finished aud the auditing on an adapter that would allow strategists to use Euler um, and Euler had a massive vulnerability, right? And if, you know, we had been um, 
uh, if we had been uh, had an open oil position, kind of there's, a prob- the there's a possibility. We kind of dodged a bullet there. Though. There's a possibility we could have lost funds. Absolutely. Um, you know, and you know, there's also you know, there's also you know, there, and then there's the asset risk, right? Like the um, yeah, something happens you know, to USDC, for example. Then there's other issues. Something happens to USDC, or you know, something happens to WBTC, or something happens to um, you know any any token that's in the strategy. But you know, you know, with real yield USD, we like our we've been you know whenever we make a presentation or anything, we like basically the like big risks that we call out are smart contract risk, and then uh, uh, risks with the underlying protocols, and then risks with the underlying assets. So if there's a real world asset component, if something goes wrong at the real world asset interface layer, um, you know, which is essentially what happened here, where we had uh, a loss of confidence at the like interface layer between USDC and the banking system, um, you can you you uh, there is there is the possibility of loss. Yeah, I think um, fortunately, for, like, fortunately, that was not was not actually lost this time. I think a lot of the people who are listening in this room right now are sort of like. If you're still here in the bear market, you're a lot of the people I recognize here are very much like crypto natives now. They sort of get it or they've been wrecked at some point or the other. But for anybody that's listening, yep. Aerospace is recording. It might be the, I'm on, on a podcast or something else. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, just understanding that, like, to some extent, these are like interconnected, somewhat experimental systems. And the allocation of any kind of funds you place on these systems should like reflect those possibilities. So in other words, don't stick your entire life savings into something just because we talk about it or something like that. Like people can say things like not financial advice and all this other bullshit, but the reality is sometimes people ape in and do weird shit anyway. Um, <laughs> so like just because we're talking about things does not mean we're advocating a specific um, strategy. I think I think uh, it's I think it's helpful to try some of these small systems at a small scale. Um, even if I try with like tiny amounts of money, I look at that as like the cost of my education to some extent. Like if I throw a dollar at something and say, okay, look, I want to see what this thing does, what kind of performance it has, you know, it, it, to me, I tend to sort of throw a little bit of money at things because if I have a little skin in the game, I tend to pay a bit more attention. So it's like almost like the cost of my attention to pay, you know, see what's going on. I think these different protocols are sort of fun to learn from just because you can sort of better understand the industry and what's possible with both blockchain, smart contracts, everything else. So to me, it's like one big like education process. And um, I I think each platform, whether it's on chain or whether it's on centralized exchanges, everyone offers like slightly different, interesting products that can be fun to play with, but also can be super risky if you don't know what you're doing as well so like these things don't fully uh, yeah i mean with, without a doubt what, what i would say is without a doubt everything in DeFi is super new um uh you know just because a protocol has high tbl just because the protocol has been uh uh around for a, for a period of time name is becoming popular you know always you know, you, you always got to think of these things as as potentially quite risky. Um, but, you know, what we're trying to do with SOM is show that like a new uh, uh, um, a new uh, um, a new uh, Just a different uh, way of like, doing things, really. Right? A new way of doing things is like, is like possible and like, like think of the possibility, right? Think about how much 
less expensive it would be to like run a financial system if instead of having to have accountants and lawyers supervising the the like management of every like investment fund out there like to make sure that like the fund managers don't like run away with like all of the users uh money as like or like take fees where they shouldn't or take fees in a fraudulent way like all of that stuff could be automated right and it can be automated like we have it all running on top of song today um and you know there are interesting technical challenges about like extending that architecture to support like multiple chains and stuff like that but like you know, like SOM is a demonstration that like something that is like far less custodial, far less risky is possible. So, you know, that's that to me is like the point of like the the R&D effort of crypto, right? Like we're all in this kind of like open public R&D effort to like research what news, what, what, what like kind of a new financial system is possible. Um, and I think SOM is a great is an example of that. Yeah, I mean, from what I've seen from like general capabilities of smart contracts and blockchain, much of what the the um, much of what the uh, existing financial institutions do, whether it comes to quantitative trading or other things, can clearly be implemented um, in this space. Um, the The problem has been things like different chains and and assets having bridges. Um, there's been like complexity with um, you know, of course, with privacy and some other things, there's also been uh, tax efficiency issues with different types of products. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of like challenges, but uh, like if, for example, if I had the ability to take, I don't know, let's say a hundred blue chip stocks and I could put a rebalancer bot together to trade on the volatility of that um, and just simply have like a coin that I could own that represented that ETF. Um, and that could execute in a manner that I think would be generally profitable. It'd be really, really cool. The The thing is you like tokenizing assets, for example, is uh, not as easy as it sounds. So it's hard to interface with the native system. Um, and on the other hand, like in the crypto space, there is this tendency for a substantial portion of the assets to be correlated. And by what that, what I mean by that is when Bitcoin goes up, Ethereum goes up, when Ethereum goes up, Adam goes up and everything sort of correlates together, partly because the robots make that happen, the bot trading, but also like it's just a singular space. And, and there's a tendency for liquidity to come in and out of the system like uh, and leverage to be deployed on the system based on things like Bitcoin going up. So the more decorrelated assets you have. You, so, for example, let's say oil goes up <clears throat> uh, and uh, let's say, I don't know, Microsoft stock goes down then you know you have two different things moving in two different directions and that's where a trader can benefit from like etfs vaults or um or kind of like trading bots that can take advantage of the difference between assets so the more uncorrelated assets you can get in DeFi, uh the more interesting things become now what what has happened though with the stablecoin problem and why this to me this usdc event was you know it really kind of just irritates me to no end is because a lot of the uh volatility difference the or volatility arbitrage i would say between crypto and um other crypto is not very good you have to have a stable coin in the mix in order to sort of like 
uh, really make use of DeFi strategies, which is why it's been so important to have uh, stable coins that really, really work. A lot of the trading volume tends to happen in stable coins. Um, probably some of the ones the vaults in your system probably do as well. And um, so that that's why I, when we were starting the conversation out, I kind of brought up the stablecoin USDC thing because it's such a nerve wracking problem to deal with. But I think uh, real quick, TM, uh, you got a question? Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so thank you guys for letting me up here for a quick second. So um, just, uh, you know, kind of piggybacking a little bit on on this conversation as you look to bring more real world assets on on chain or privately held assets on chain that uh, don't typically have the type of price data, mark to market data that you would um, need um, in order to accurately assess sort of what is a good uh, inflection point for trading. Uh, I'm curious, Zachy, if you have currently any thoughts or plans for that sort of asset level surveillance to to create those um, baskets where where you know assets might not be correlated because I think the correlation uh, tends to be because of the available actually the available price feeds that we have right now right all of the price feeds are coming from open markets and trading and um, you know and some of the things more like you know privately held real estate or you know other types of assets business assets uh, you know that that data is not as readily available so just curious if you have thought of any sort of future solutions for that as you're building out your uh your program with some yeah absolutely um i well i mean the first thing is yes we currently don't have anything any sort of technology for dealing with um sort of illiquid, uh, infrequently priced assets. Um, and like generally my sense of the world is that probably like the, ma the major area of real world assets in the near future is going to be, um, is going to be primarily credit, um, potentially credit that's like backing or collateralizing or, or collateralized by um, real world assets. But like, Mostly because mostly what you're done trying to you mostly have to do is price default risk um, rather than uh, rather than the need to price um, like the actual underlying asset in the strategy. Um, but I think it will be cool um, definitely to imagine some you know farther future to imagine uh, uh, systems where and then like you end up with this like how do you have I mean, that's, that's a kind of, uh, you know, so like, you know, the, the system of how do you take fees and, and, you know, um, those kinds of mechanisms can be enormously automated. Um, but what is, what is a decentralized and reliable and difficult to corrupt mechanism for like pricing illiquid assets end up looking like? Um, and I think that, that represents like a, uh, uh, you know, you go like, how can we do that in a, in the same way that we've done it with Psalm, uh, without reintroducing pricing into the mix? Um, I think there's like clever stuff that honestly can be done with like, with like cryptocurrencies, right? Where like people potentially, you know, um, are essentially, you know, uh, uh, you know, when they're, when they're offering prices is potentially putting up like stake or collateral, uh, to back those the prices that they're offering, like I, I do imagine that platform that like that kind of thing can exist in the future. Like that, it's not an unsolvable problem to come up with like uh, decentralized mechanisms of dealing with illiquid assets on chain. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I've been I've been kind of following um, a couple of interesting sort of private equity focused products in the past few months. One of them is called Invenium, and they have sort of enormous traction in the market in the private equity market right now. I think they've brought something like 130 billion dollars in illiquid private assets um, on chain and primarily on private blockchains. Um, so, you know, the private equity folks are still building their own walled gardens uh, and not really playing with the rest of us. And and that's fine. But I'm kind of curious. Yeah, to, I'm, I'm interested to see how the evolution of sort of third party um, asset surveillance evolves, right? Because I think that there are, you're correct that the path to decentralizing this asset surveillance is is difficult and eventually we'll need some kind of um, you know, system, whether it's 10 or 20 years from now, where um, the value of that asset can be audited or validated or surveyed by, um, by you know, participants on the chain, um, you know, in order to be able to have that asset tradable as a part of something like an ETF, right? So um, anyways, I thank you super, super interested in SOM and, and uh, I've been following it for a while, but thank you for taking the time to sort of answer that question for me. I'm a uh, huge fan of your work, so uh, it's been a great pleasure to be here. Zucky, different question. Um, regarding the SOM token, the blockchain itself, obviously there is a possibility that some people can get exposure to the token. Um, maybe you can describe briefly sort of like the token distribution and kind of the, the, yeah. uh, the tokenomics of that let's, briefly. Yeah, let's talk about SOM, the SOM token. Um, SOM is a very interesting experiment for Cosmos in the sense that we're basically doing a non-inflationary token. Um, there's a fixed supply of 500 million SOM, um, and the 500 million SOM have been, um, at, is like, so like basically what we anticipated was that there was going to be need to be some need for incentives to bootstrap the protocol. So there's 30% of the, you know, 150 million SOM were allocated in Genesis uh, to the community pool. The community pool is run very similar to like a tradition to like all the Cosmos community pools right now. Uh, I don't know whether or not, I don't, I suspect that's not the long-term answer of how the SOM community pool should be functioning right now. But for the, for the early days, bootstrapping days, it's just like, you know, we, there are these, there are governance votes, um, staked SOM holders. Um, and then SOM, we sold about 31% of the tokens um, to investors uh, on a two-year vesting schedule uh, that started in, on August 13th, 2021, um, and are, you know, are, are vesting towards that. So like the majority of the tokens that are, are, are going to be vested have been vested. Um, then there's a bunch of tokens. There's, you know, there's like sort of uh, an initial contributor's chunk of tokens uh, that was about 10, that was 10% um, that are in four-year vesting contracts. Um, and then there's like a, you know, the foundation holds about another 30%, you know, 29% of the tokens. Um, um, and it, it does, it, it, it does business with them is basically we reward various people. We, we hire uh, various parties to contribute to the protocol out of the foundation, et cetera. Um, so that's basically it. We just got, um, live real-time circulating supply numbers um, on CoinGecko, um, which, were, which was a, a whole bunch of work. 
Yeah, I was just um, looking because, at I was just looking at that just to kind of so you just got that in there, huh? Like the yeah. current I think the current numbers are like we're at like market cap rank four ninety one, market cap of about forty one million, fully diluted valuation one hundred and fourteen million. Are those two numbers about right? Yeah. And then there's those a trading numbers volume. are perfect. Yeah, yeah. The it's so the, the you know the trading but, volume is pretty low. Um, there hasn't been a lot of tokens that are out there. Um, also like a lot of, you know, so that's also the, the other, the other thing has been, so how do staking rewards work in a world without inflation? Um, so the models say that SOM needs to get to about three to 500 million TVL, um, in order to, um, in order to, uh, uh, sort of generate like sort of comparable staking rewards to let's say Adam, um, um, without any inflation. Um, which, you know, so in the bull market is revenue based. These are revenue based. Yeah. Re revenue based staking rewards. Um, and the code for the revenue based staking rewards are actually, um, in the next update. Um, we had to delay it one update, um, uh, because we wanted to get, um, but then what we decided are, and this was Christie's idea. Um, uh, Christie, my co-founder's idea was, you know, as as we got into the bear market, and you know, once FTX collapsed, you know, it was like, okay, this is going to be a longer, it's going to be a longer ride than we thought. Uh, we got into, we, you know, and you know, we're starting to launch more protocols. Um, more stuff is going on. We're asking more from the validators. Um, we need to have some staking rewards in the interim. And so uh, there was a software update about a month ago um, that. Um, uh, now added a new kind of governance proposal that basically can set uh, a withdrawal amount from the um, from the uh, from the from the community pool. So right now there's 10 million SOM allocated over uh, 5 million blocks, so two SOM per block um, allocated to staking rewards, um, and that has resulted in the current staking APY, which is on uh, Midscan and on Kepler. I don't remember what so, it is. So the, the so the um so the the staking amount right now is sort of like a, a bootstrapping sort of um yeah like gift as it were in the sense that it's not inflationary but it is it is part of it's a part of the supply that has not entered yeah. into it's it's really it's it, it's yeah it's 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 adding to the circulating supply um and um uh, the API that we have running that. Does the coin gecko circulating supply is aware of all of these things and is you know it 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 does all of this stuff in real time um and then what we've been doing all of these dynamic all of these like sort of non-traditional cosmos dynamics and then what will we do what what i'm what i plan what like what the plan is is we're going to get our um our fee system um uh deployed in in the probably the next upgrade um or definitely in the next upgrade, we're going to get the fee system out. The fee system will get deployed. The fee system will show, will, uh, what the fee system does is it takes all of the strategies that are running today, real yield USD, everything else is sitting there collecting fees. Um, there's like maybe like $3,000 in fees right now. Um, so that'll get auctioned for SOM. Um, and then what we can do is we can start having it so that, you know, the, essentially the, the, the baseline, which is the two SOM per block, um, is the goal. And then, like, don't pull the SOM from the uh, community pool if we are hitting that target 
um, or like whatever fraction of that target we can hit with fees um, and then use that. And so that'll slow down the withdrawals. And then, you know, the vision of the protocol, uh, assuming we're successful, um, is that we eventually are, 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 are funding all staking rewards from protocol fees. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, I think like one of the things that is um, somewhat unique about SOM is that like, you know, like the numbers that we need to hit are not like, oh, like crypto needs to grow by 100x. We just need to be either crypto needs to grow by like 10 to 100x and we need to be like a top 15 volt protocol um or like even in the current market if we could get into like the top three or the top five um we would actually be in a place where we would be sustaining staking rewards from um from fees yeah so i think i don't think there's like another cosmos chain that like um um you know uh no or like i think the number of cosmos chains like injective has a pretty good fee plan um, and like where they're going with the tokens. Um, and uh, I'm pretty excited about like fees on Noble, uh, but it's like still relatively rare in Cosmos for people to actually like have a plan um, that is like near term realizable um, for uh, how do we get away from, from powering staking rewards with anything other than like printing new tokens. So like timing wise, um, in terms of like you guys planning in the background, like, like, what is your theory in terms of sort of market growth? I know it's like there's a lot of moving parts, but like in your head personally, like where do you think crypto market is in, let's say, mm, three years? Um, and therefore, like, what are you trying to what kind of capital are you, at capital and TVL are you trying to attract to some in reference to these kind of, you know, like, again, it's all. Yeah, I mean, like it's really subjective stuff. But like, just what is your thought? So. Real yield USD should scale to about 50 million. Um, we're looking, we have a couple more strategies that, you know, I've talked to strategists about that potentially have to be exist on. So we need like, well, we need like 10 strategies that scale to 50 million, right? Um, and that would get us to uh, uh, the break even point from a staking point of view. Or, um, or, you know, another strategy that blows up even bigger um, it would be really cool if there was like a strategy for, you know, um, um, you know, just like ETH trading or Bitcoin trading that like also achieved considerable scale. Like the, the potential market sizes of all of that stuff is pretty large. Um, but like, you know, people, the platform is very flexible. People are trying new things. We have, a stra- we have strategies that are coming down that are more like index type strategies. Um, we have strategies that are, you know, exploiting some more of the opportunities that we see in real yield USD, but for other assets, um, there's a, there's, there's a lot of opportunities to grow TVL. Um, and yeah, I think we, like, we, uh, yeah, just gotta keep my, off the top of my head, the, the vault, like I would like to see, um, if I were to take some of the popular coins in cosmos and I were to take them in a liquid staked form so let's say i have like yep. liquid staked atoms so i don't forgo the staking yield necessarily if i had the liquid staked version and therefore i'm still getting access to all of that staking yield in in the price of the lsd token if i had a system that could like um be a basket of lsds that like let's say for example 
mm, I don't know, like stride token is up, you know, like 5% today, you know, a portion of the stride token would be sold and would buy me more of, let's say, the rest of the basket, which is not as high up today. So it would basically just like tr trade like a rebalancer bot. And I neither forego the, I don't lose the benefits of staking yield. I, I remain completely tax efficient. I end up having to just own like one coin to represent this basket. Um, all of that seems like it would be the product I would use, if that makes sense. Like, <laughs> and I don't necessarily nice. even want a lot of stablecoin yield because I'm a stablecoin exposure. A lot of why I'm in crypto is because I want exposure to crypto. If I wanted a lot of stablecoin, it's called USD. I could just stick it in a bank. I don't have to own USDC for this. So to me, it's like the stablecoin exposure. And one of the, I think, you know, things that people talk about with crypto, they don't like the volatility. I like the volatility. The whole point is the volatility. As long as it remains volatile, it remains popular. It's why Bitcoin was designed the way it was designed with a shock to the system every so often, right? With the having yep. um, rewards. That was done intentionally to to create like intentional volatility. And uh, and that's why it's not like on a spectrum, like where it's just the volatility goes. I mean, the the half the having rewards happen every so often as opposed to in a in a uh, like continuous manner like it does with some some proof of work chains. The reason for that was to intentionally create a shock to the system to uh, to cause volatility, which pulls traders in. So crypto volatility and making use of crypto volatility, but also making not losing exposure to my proof of stake yield simultaneously is a product that has not really been like consistently built. It's certainly not built in Cosmos yet. I know on Terra there was some work being done in that direction, but that was before the crash. And so I really want to see those things built, honestly. It'd be the product I would use, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, the main reason why we focused on Ethereum is, I mean, right now, I mean, I, I, I fully get you uh, and uh, agree with you to a certain extent. But the other thing that's it's cool on Ethereum is right, right now is just like the, um, the like, the real, like sort of the like utility use of the DeFi platform on Ethereum right now is still is still somewhat unrivaled by anything else. So like, you know, when we're, when we're generating the like, you know, six and a half percent base yield on real world USD, what we're doing is we're, we're generating it from people who are primarily swapping stable coins for real purposes. Um, and we also think, you know, I, I'm very hopeful that like, you know, we can get past this like sort of stable coin dark age that we're in right now. Um, and like see a world in which, for instance, like um, like euro dollar foreign exchange like uses uh, you know uses stable coins. And I imagine that in the you know next six months to a year, a lot of those opportunities are going to be on Ethereum. Um, you know, liquid staking derivatives on Ethereum are going to be orders of magnitude bigger than what we see on Cosmos. I'm very bullish on Cosmos, and I actually think that like a Cosmos chain. So like one of the tricky things is also just um, so like we do all of these like fee and uh, uh, net asset value computations uh, for users atomically on the on the EVMs. Um, if we wanted to have something that was multi-chain um, so that like, you know, you have you have positions on multiple blockchains, which I think is like 
the most likely going to be like sort of the answer that you need for Cosmos, right? Like to build compelling products for Cosmos, you're going to need to hold positions on multiple chains. Um, and the tricky piece with that is that you're going to change the user experience from I put my money in, I get my LP shares. I put, I put in my LP shares, I get my money out, um, you know, uh, atomically and instantaneously to a model where it's like, I put my money in, I get a promise, um, I redeem that promise, you know, a few hours later or like an hour later after like all of the chains have synchronized with each other. I want to get my money out. I give my LP shares. I wait, you know, uh, uh, I wait on the order of a few minutes to an hour. Um, yeah, and you're, then I get what my you're money saying out. is that synchronizing between everything is not as straightforward as like snapping your fingers and making yeah. it happen. So they, there are additional sort of like uh, time complexities involved. I can see that. Yep. Interesting. Like, do you think uh, where IBC is going, uh, these types of things will be just like is this what people are thinking about when they're building ibc that we could ultimately be able to do oh things yeah like absolutely yeah like absolutely i mean i i do think that this is where ibc is gen generally going where um where you know this is these are the tricky pieces of multi-chain composability um and like you know i think stride has really been like leading the way in many ways on this like they're like a classic example of like an asynchronous protocol. You put your money in, you wait a little while, you finally get your LP shares or like your, your ST atom. Uh, you take your ST atom to the, uh, to osmosis, you get your, you get your, your osmosis LP shares. Like those, those pieces composing together are, um, um, are like a, are a big deal. Yeah, and I, I having just played with Stride a little bit, I noticed that. Yeah, the the delay and everything that makes sense. Yeah, um, you know that's you know I I I've been thinking about these things from both like different levels of UX, right? Like I think you know I think with like what Anoma is doing, hopefully we'll be able to like express the kind of like intent based system, so you could be able to like just be like, hey, I have this much atom, I would like, I would like at least this much, uh, 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 I would like this much, uh, 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 like Osmo or like ST Adam, Adam LP shares on osmosis, like, you know, just express that intent and like, you know, a, a bot can go and like execute all the intermediary transactions to give you um, yeah, like, what you want. I, but I think, I think there, those things the, are coming. Some of the, the video game world, like mm, this could be, these kinds of things become interesting because imagine so like all right i have my atom it has some yield and the treasury for my spaceship in my video game i have a guild and for our little group you know we 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 need to fill up the fuel tank of the spaceship we fill it full of atom which is the fuel source of the sp spaceship it's got this yield that yield is then used to say for example getting access to like automatically porting over to get access to sort of like maybe a pool of high volatility LSDs that are like counter trading each other. Um, and then that can then be used to like you t the profit from that automatically goes back and like maybe buys me more Adam and um, like, and then that, you know, escalates my yield and there's sort of like a feedback loop of LSDs and different like weird shit. And so all of those kind of little game theory ideas would be like, well, um, you know, depending on the goals, uh, like of your spaceship, like 
you know, let's call it in a video game, you would basically be able to mm, design systems to have the cash go where you want it to go in a composable way to achieve what you want to achieve. And then people could basically put like little building blocks that are like available in a marketplace. And then now like, you know, what, you know, like the funding system for my guild or my treasury or whatever it is um, now becomes really sort of easy and composable and completely transparent to the end user. All they know is they put in money here and they can expect approximately this much back over there. And um, like, <laughs> like the layers of complexity start to evaporate. So what's interesting about all of that is like those are fairly easy to understand when you just jot them down on a piece of paper and like draw a flow diagram. The harder part is like the implementation piece that you're describing and timing differences between blockchains and all of that interesting fun stuff. And that is like, I was thinking about this from the angle of like, I have this theory in my head and I don't, I haven't seen anyone like create this yet. But my suspicion is, is that the solution for proof of stake blockchains to prevent some of the issues like Sybil, to prevent some of the issues like um, governance decay and other, uh, like all sorts of problems is that I think that the entire blockchain uh, needs to be an actual video game. Like there's a game theory that like a meta game that that would be not not as a video game as in like, oh, look, I have Doom and I just ported that to crypto. No, this theory that like the mixture of um, uh, consumer chains and primary chains, you could create some interesting interactions between them, create a game that incentivizes supporting the validator network and supporting decentralization. And I think there's something there and, I, and I'm trying to flesh it out completely. But I watch all of these different chains and what they're doing and the different like derivatives and things people are producing and, and trying to like create like the arsenal of game pieces necessary to finalize the, the big game. But I, I, I strongly think that like DeFi's um, incentive system is probably like it needs to be gamified to meet like with all the incentives and uh, and have all the incentives that humans want uh, coincide with all the things that the network needs. And I believe there's a, like, there's a play there. There's a design, a grand design there that I haven't fully thought out yet. <laughs> but like, I, I really think about these things from this level because there's a lot of things broken in, in like the other thing about composability, Zucky, is like, if, if you compose too much stuff and like USDC breaks or some chain halts or some problem occurs, like, how is the system going to compensate for all of that? And um, there still aren't great answers to all of that yet, unfortunately, like at least none that are perfect in my mind. Yeah. And, and even the bridge risks, all the, the bridge shenanigans we saw over the past two to three years and how many hacks happened with those. Like, you know, like to me, like I'm not using a bridged asset, like, like consistently ever again, you know, it's just not, it's not worth the extra risk generally. So it's like the more things we can do natively within Cosmos and ultimately natively we can do with an IBC, uh, I think there is a play there um, between the app, app chain thesis and the composability thesis. There is, I think there's a story there and I think it takes a certain genius to sort of put it all together, I suspect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Like I think, you know, there's like a lot of pieces that of, of blockchain infrastructure that still need to come together for 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 all of this vision to 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 become real, um, um, uh, that um, that the um, uh, like uh, you know like 
we need bridging protocols that aren't terrible and don't suck, preferably like white client based or better. Um, we need like all of these cross chain composability pieces have to get established and like querying and, you know, et cetera, between chains uh, needs to exist. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I do think we're like, we're still very much in like kind of an infrastructure building age. Like one of the challenges I think is that like in general, it's like Cosmos has like a lot of interesting pieces of infrastructure, but we don't have the liquidity yet. Um, and that's, that's a big problem that needs to be solved. Yeah, speaking of which, uh, like, so part of the so-called like Web3 narrative to me is sort of like the viral growth of platforms in the sense that in a traditional, uh, like if you're a Shopify, for example, a recent example of a commercial enterprise that uh, has built in the Web2 sort of experience, the e-commerce space, these kinds of platforms have to spend a substantial amount of money on advertising to get eyeballs in to get the attention. One is they produce a great product and people use it. But secondly, you have to get like, uh, at some level, advertising gets expensive in just commerce in general. Um, like to me, a big part of the success of um, like any blockchain is sort of like the viral grassroots shillability of a chain. Like you have to be able to explain to someone exactly what it does in like a sentence and why they should care about it. And it's really, really hard to do for some of the more complex things because a lot of people don't even know what they need to know in order to even ask the right question. So I always find that do your own research is a laughable sort of theory for most of us. Like it just doesn't make any sense at all. We don't have, we're not mentally equipped to like do our own research to a large extent, unfortunately. But eventually like this idea is like the, these platforms become obvious and usable. Uh, like why do I want to, use this thing and it's so useful that you're going to tell your friends you're going to tell your family you're going to make a little youtube video about it i know in crypto there is like this concept of like oh so and so is shilling such and such but secretly everyone wants everyone else to shill their bags it's actually kind of funny um but i think you know the shillability of something or i would i consider like the virality of a thing is rooted ultimately in utility. Sometimes the utility of a blockchain is purely like memeability, like for example, what the Dogecoin people taught us or the Shiba people. It's amazing how much yeah. market cap some of the meme-based strategies have, you know, whether it's a bullshit chain or a pro bullshit project or not. You have to appreciate like there is an element of that memeability. I suspect like some like DeFi game theory probably adds to that i noticed this when Terra was really popular like what happened was is as the DeFi primitives started coming about and people were having fun on the different platforms like there was yeah the price of num you know number go up is always fun and all of that but people were having a lot of fun using the platforms to me like the biggest like DeFi game so far has been DeFi itself. Like DeFi itself is a video game for a bunch of nerds and autists or whatever. So it's like, like these kinds of things I think are important to sort of capitalize on. Ultimately, it's like, what makes this fun to use? Um, because if you can't deploy millions of dollars on it, because you don't have that much, you could maybe a end user might have a hundred bucks they want to throw at something. Like, I think they want to have fun 
with what they're doing. That's what we've noticed a lot of. Like, if they're not having fun doing it, obviously user experience and everything is important. Dashboards, you can log in there every day and see how your shit is doing is important. Like, there is an element of the fun factor uh, in the sense that, like, interesting blockchains seem to be entertaining to use. Like, I know it sounds dumb, but, like, it was re it's really fun logging into some sites and seeing what's going on and, like, seeing how your yield is doing today and whatever else, right? Like, there's a kind of a weird, like, repetitive, like, obsessive yeah. fun that comes from that. I think it's important to, like, I will say that to really consider all that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, with some, like, I mean, I find logging into uh, the D-Bank view of uh, real yield USD um, is like one of the most addictive things, like just like seeing what the position is. Um, you know, we have two, we have two independent dashboards that are really cool. One is, one is D-Bank has a, uh, as a view, it's like linked off of the sommelier Twitter. Um, and then also DeFi Llama, um, like we, we built like really good dashboards, uh, for DeFi Llama about like what's happening with yield on like the various Psalm strategies. Um, and so you can definitely see performance and yeah, there's like an, in, there's a completely insane, like, uh, 1500% APY spike on real yield USD from Saturday, which will ruin the graph forever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Like, whoops. <laughs> but yeah, like if, if, but that probably benefited the holders right like that volatility probably oh yeah, yeah. if you were in, if you were in the vault you made you made great you, you know you, it was it was it was very profitable yeah uh, anybody that had like a stable coin based bot running on you based on unfortunately like a lot of people didn't get any benefit from this because a lot of bots running on a lot of platforms were usdt based not usdc and usdt only well, like depegged upwards to like one or two percent no, no, but if you were if you were lending you which is what the strategy was actually doing um on uh on saturday which was lending usdt it was just like insanely profitable oh, to be yeah, lending yeah, yeah. USDT. it was really popular right yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's cool. just like it was just <laughs> it was like i think the apy i like i think we i think the like apy for for like lending ET on compound hit like 5,000%. Um, but you could, and like the, I think the strategy was like half, was like half in that vault. So, yeah, I think the curve, someone was posting that the curve uh, pool like got so imbalanced that it almost had no tether left in it, which is, yeah, really yeah, yeah. the curve pool had no, no tether in it. Like curve, curve volumes were off the charts. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, the volume, was, like it, at the top of this, the volume for like USDC was like 50% of the market cap, which is hilarious. What a mess. <laughs> like, it's just so funny. Yeah. If it wasn't such a tragedy for some people, it's pretty funny. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think on, I mean, hopefully, you know, hopefully, you know, relative, hopefully, relative, you know, there's that, you know, one, uh, like somewhat viral transaction went wrong where somebody like lost like two million dollars trying to swap it to, to usdt and like not taking care of slippage properly but uh in general there's a uh, you know hopefully mostly people you know people held uh and didn't panic um but uh you know so so real losses were not that bad but you know it, it also like you know you know at least you know like DeFi functioned you know it was like the banking system didn't give you any opportunity for 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 changing your risk profile but 
you know, DeFi had liquidity for going back and forth between Tether and USDZ, which is why the volumes were um, so high. Yeah, yeah. And like, you never, there's always winners and losers in these things. Anytime the market cap shifts that much, then for the price to have gone down that much, somebody was selling while it was low, right? So if you had a DPEG down to like 95 cents and you're like, holy shit, I can't tolerate this. I've got $10 million in USDC. We can't do, be doing this. I've got to sell because I just can't take money risk with my money. Then you would have lost 5% there. And you might have prevent, like maybe you bought back lower, maybe you didn't. But there is a possibility that some people, there's almost certainly people who lost money because it's just, otherwise it wouldn't have depegged to that range, right? Someone had to sell low for it to happen. So there's always yeah. a tragedy somewhere. You may not hear all of it, but I, I do have a theory that I think like there is, there is this like, the only people left in crypto right now are relatively more crypto native because a lot of retail got shaken out. You can see it in Twitter. You can see it in Twitter spaces. So like, de like DeFi natives to some extent. And there is this sort of hesitancy to FUD everyone's own bags when it comes to USDC because it's, it's an important part of the ecosystem of Ethereum and to some extent a liquidity um, like pool for you know, transactions for BTC and everything else. So, and not only that, but if, if something happens to, to, to USDC, then all you have left is Tether and the next thing you know comes Tether FUD, right? So it was not in anyone crypto native's best interest to do a whole lot of USDC FUDing so I did notice a dramatically lower amount of that. Like people were upset with SVG or whoever and different things, but like very few people were willing to blame Circle. And I think it's because it's all like people worried about their own bags largely. Psychologically, like even I was like, oh shit, I don't like this at all, but I'm not willing to like tweet anything substantially negative because it's just too, like, I don't know. Like it's, it'll, you'll, one, you'll seem like an opportunist of some kind, but also because like uh, expressing your opinion during that time also is kind of like, um, like, I don't know, it doesn't really help any of my bags for USDC to go to zero or something. So I'm like not interested in that because even if I didn't have any USDC, it'll affect liquidity for all of the coins that we care about and will in fact hurt all of them one way or the other, right? Like that's always going to happen. So the whole thing made me pretty nervous, but I don't know. We'll see how it all plays out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but like, do you think, and it's very hard to gauge, by the way, Zucky, like the, the effect on retail sentiment for stable coins has been somewhat racked, at least in the United States, by what happened with Celsius, what happened to Voyager and all the others that got in trouble. Many of which were platforms yeah. designed. They were designed for consumer grade usage and consumer grade ease of use. And a lot of people, by the way, like misunderstood what USDC was versus USD. Like the fact that you did have some li liability as a USDC holder, and then also people that figured, oh, it's probably it's FDIC insured and this and that because it's it's in a bank called Manhattan Bank in Voyager's case. And it turned out that only the USD technically was, but uh, only that which was in Manhattan Bank. It didn't actually even translate to the end user because if the brokerage went bankrupt, which it did, you may not get all of your USD back either. Luckily, in that instance, FDIC gave back people's money. I mean, I think in, because they would have been sued by FDIC if they didn't for false uh, claims. So they kind of got around that. But like what I learned from all that, not to make this into a thing about something else, I learned that like 
retail has no fucking clue what any of this is. Like they see USD, USDC, USDT, whatever it is. And as far as their mind is concerned, 95% of people or more will assume if they're new to this, that that just means a dollar, right? Like that's what they think. Sure. And that's a, that's a tricky and, thing. So like the education, like mountain, like it's not a molehill. It's like this mountain. And you're like, ne- my conclusion is, is that you will simply never educate the general public fully on this. There's no such thing. It's a fantasy land to think that you'll get everyone to quote unquote understand. So sure. At the end of the day, it's like, well, I mean, I think the, like, the interesting thing about like this aspect from my point of view though, is, is like, the way the market was pricing USDC over the weekend was just like made like no sense whatsoever. Um, like they were like, like one in general depositors losing money in Silicon Valley bank case would be like an unprecedented and cataclysmic failure of the U S banking system. So, and then uh, uh, so like maybe there's like a one percent probability of that, and then like the thing that you're pricing is not a hundred percent like like which was never on the table like that like depo- that like depositors were going to lose a hundred percent of their funds. It was like depositors were going to lose five percent of their funds, and if depositors had lost five percent of their funds, it would still be an unprecedented cataclysm um, for the U.S. banking system. Uh, and so, but like at the same time, like we watched. You know, and, something and that represented. We, knew, Rocky, we also knew that USDC, like Circle, um, was good for a vast majority of it. So, like being ten percent down on USDC made zero sense. Uh, yeah, it just made Circle absolutely has, no Circle has, sense. Circle has connections too; like they can find access to liquidity. Um, you know, so it's like three billion or whatever the amount was was doable. That's why I was like, okay, the market's retarded. I'm going to go buy, but like, yeah, I yeah, took some, I took some atom yield that I had. And I just said, screw it. I'm just going to buy some uh, USDC with it. And I literally just did exactly that because I'm like, screw this. I'm thinking it's going to come back. I'm just going to make a free 10%. Fuck it. Like, that's what I did. Yeah. Like, just armed it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was, a lot of, there was a lot of people made free money, but it was, yeah, it was just, it was bizarre to me, though, that people doing that was not enough to push the price back up, which was weird yes. and interesting. That's an extremely uh, important sort of lesson. I learned a lot by watching the price action of it and the recovery speed about how much of this money was sort of like retail, institutional, whatever, how much of it would go down in the case of this. You saw it also with like the UST attack by Alameda. We know that's Alameda now that did that. But like you you can get a sense of like how much um, like how the price action responds to arbitrage how many arbitrageurs are actually out there to do this job. And like, even when uh, it was announced by circle that uh, like, you know, you're going to be made whole uh, on Monday or whatever it is. uh, The number of, I would say like, like how slowly it went back up, I think taught me a lot about the reflexivity, reflexivity of that system. Um, And like, even though, yeah, like just just based on how much theoretical liability they had and how much they could have lost in, in circle in the background if their money got stuck in SVG, like just the response to them that the market has to it is a, a lesson. And then the lesson of how quickly it rebounded taught me a lot about like the system. So I tend to look like I'm a critical care physician by trade. So I watch death and destruction as like a normal thing. 
so like when I watch these things, it's like I'm doing an autopsy in my head. I'm like, wait, like, you know, what was the stress to the system? You know, sort of like you do a heart stress test on somebody. Like, what might that imply in terms of the underlying plumbing? And like, what can I expect in the future? And what kind of like risks and opportunities does that represent? I just sort of like think all that's very interesting stuff. I mean, also people were predicting like multi-billion dollar redemptions today, right? And like none of that has happened um, as far as I'm aware um, from from like watching t- Twitter. No one is at least tweeting about, you know, I guess we'll know. five, six, ten, $10 billion dollar uh, USDC redemptions right now. Yeah, um, I think we'll know more like uh, based on how I think the market cap also does over the period of the next like week, we'll get a better sense of it as well. Yeah. Yeah, but like no, no massive rush to the exit uh, on Monday with redemptions open, right? Which I, which I is what I expected would happen. Um, like, I, I suspect like, though there might be, you know, you know what the regulatory regime might do here though, like they might make a new requirement, and one of those could be very dicey. And let's say you are an exchange like Coinbase or whatever, and you have user funds on the platform in USDC, they might actually get to the point where they force the underlying um, sort of like exchange to have a certain amount of cash reserves for redemptions on top of whatever um, circle or whoever actually offers, right? So that this is less of a problem and that could become a much more expensive thing in the future if that were to occur. That could get interesting pretty quickly. I I have this sneaky suspicion that there's going to be an element of that at some point. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I I'm curious how. I mean, there's a there's there's a huge political layer to this whole thing. Like, you know, everyone was. Exp- I mean, like, you know, there was a lot of talk and and discussion about the Stablecoin Act, like making forward progress this year, um, which. You know, if the stablecoin act, like if the stablecoin act were to happen, like one, the stablecoin act would have prevented this whole problem because um, Circle would no longer have to keep um, uh, the cash balances for this in in regional banks. They would be able to keep the cash balances in the Fed, um, um, which would you know make all of this pro- this whole problem go yeah, away. But also, every- right, right. Because either like, that, anyone, any other bank that wants to issue would also be able to do the same thing. Um, yeah, I think what you either get is you have stablecoin issuers being private institutions, um, or you end up having the more maybe malicious problem of CBDCs. I don't know if you wind up with the same problem either way. I think a lot of the pe- things that we worry about with CBDCs have to do with more like control issues and how how much totalitarian dystopias you can produce with CBDCs. I think a lot of I think anybody that you has an ounce of like brain or imagination can realize how much of a like you know how 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 many people you can subjugate with such a system. So I so in one way I I'm sort of rooting for the private system to work. On the other hand, it's like, well, do you just create like a like a quasi military industrial complex in the private public world anyway? I don't know, but it can't be it can't be any worse probably than all of the right in the form of the government. Like the the problem becomes that's a lever that's too uh, easily like turned. Uh, it's a knob that's too easily like turned in terms of like 
economic policy and such. And I think it just, to me, it gives me the willies in a sense. Um, so I'm hoping like private stablecoin issuers thrive and maybe like maybe a dozen of them emerge, not just circle, right? Like I, I want to see more experiments in terms of like what the interface between the real world asset system and the like, um, you know, like uh, this is not shade on circle, but it's like, you know, what I think, what like what Ondo is doing with like, uh, uh, you know, tokenized treasury bonds, which are not permissionless, right? But they have this thing called Flux, which is like an interface point between um, between uh, uh, like where you're able to collateralize like DeFi loans um, with treasuries. So you know, you could imagine building a stablecoin out of that architecture um, instead of. Um, a, a stablecoin architecture where, like, you know, you're connected to the banking system. So I think there's going to be like an interesting push and pull in the evolution of the stablecoin market between, like, you know, if if there is a if if the stablecoin act passes, there is at least going to be one architecture that will somewhat be enshrined legally um, and will end up being probably the dominant architecture if the stablecoin act doesn't make progress, I think there's going to be more opportunity for for experimentation with different private stablecoin architectures. Yeah, just just like what Swift did, there is like a, a winner take all sort of protocol scenario. Like it's like if you look at how the United States Federal Reserve and Treasury and everything like issue digital dollars now, it's like those things are on cobalt systems or whatever from who the fuck knows when. And these things tend to get enshrined for very long periods of time, like both from, from a regulatory capture perspective and from just like a technology capture perspective. It's weird. It's really hard for like these type of base layer systems to shift quickly, right? So it's, it's, it's you hope that somehow like in the aggregate, this works out well for everybody. Um, and I'm hopeful that in the United States generally, whether you're like Republican, Democrat or Libertarian, I do believe there is a relatively deeper libertarian streak that goes through almost all people, like not all people, but like in general to the United States compared to other countries. Hopefully, culturally, culturally that persists and all political parties are sufficiently suspicious about over centralizing these like and then like jumping all in with CBDCs or whatever. I, I hope that dialogue stays um, like very aggressively skeptical. Um, by all people that love freedom is what my hope is. I don't know if that will actually be the case or not. You never know with these things. Human beings are, and government systems are highly unpredictable and super like prone to major fuck ups. Right? Like, so it's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, I'm also, I'm just kind of a little bit shocked at how, like, with the shutdown of Signature, how like openly anti crypto it's been acceptable within the government to be. Um, it's a, uh, like, I don't know. I think yeah. it's, it, it's definitely weird though, for like, just like the U S to like have, you know, so like, like eat Denver was 25,000 people. Right. It's like, it's bizarre to like, like for the U S to exist in a regime where like, where you have like, frankly, a thing where there's like a lot of popular interest, right? 
um, and suddenly becoming this like politically disfavored. It doesn't, it's not typically how things work. It also just happens to depend on like which politicians you have at that moment. And like, there's a lot of sort of luck involved with how technology gets adopted and how regulations happen and like what ha people happen to be there at that moment and who champions what. So it's like a massive, like, uh, shifting sands and like there's an unseen hand always where like nobody knows what the everyone else is doing and so like the outcomes of these things unless there's someone that champions a specific strategy these things happen to be left up to a lot of chance in my opinion like if you just watch how government works and everything like um and having been like involved with some government things myself like it's like just a mess of like just stuff that happens and i don't know that it's always really logical in fact a lot of the things that happen in government aren't really based on logic. It's just like whatever, like political expediency, whatever you have political capital to push. There's all sorts of reasons why things will happen. And then they happen in the backdrop of other world events and other like generency things. So um, I guess the, like, am I still connected, Zucky? Yeah, you're still here. I, I lost, I lost like connection for a second, I think. Anyway, but um, yeah, it like, these things just sort of happen. And I think if people don't continue to champion a specific direction um, and like continue to inform like Congress people or whoever, um, like you're going to get a bad outcome. So like, if you really believe in something, it's important to sort of message, the more viral the message gets, like we want this type of system, the more likely they'll say, Oh, look, the public wants X, Y, and Z. In crypto, what happens Zucky, is I think like a lot of the public doesn't exactly know what they want. Like, if you look at how people behave in crypto, like if you look at what happened with like Voyager and Celsius and this and that, when something's going great, they're like, all right, yeah, yeah, decentralization, they're all for it, right? The moment something goes bad, like their funds get stolen or they um, have like a bankruptcy or some crypto related something happens, what ends up happening is, is most people, at least in the United States, they have this tendency to believe that like the FBI will help them get their money back or like the court system needs to get me back as much money, you know, from this bankruptcy as possible. Um, the public goes to the government when something bad happens. And then when something bad happens, like the Congress and all the people there have to respond because what else could they do? They usually have to say something or do something. And um, all of that reactionary kind of like, you know, political drama happens. And then we get stuck with political changes that last for decades. You know, like this legalese that in the United States that has escalated over time. So the, the entire thing is like a been an interesting process to watch. We've, we've seen it play out in like cryptography for smartphones. We've seen it play out in terms of like legal ramifications of what you do on your smartphones, uh, what you do with your computer. And the reg regulatory stuff comes out way, way later. And it usually comes out once like politicians are actually using the system. But I think this time what happens, Zucky, is like, this last year, a lot of politicians actually lost money in crypto too, who are playing, playing around. So like, that's not a, a good look, right? Like the politicians like, wait, this is how you get fucked over on a bridge risk or whatever. And so, yeah, the more people playing, the more politicians end up like, cause since Bitcoin till now, you have enough people that have played around and maybe even people that are relatively newer politicians who understand like maybe a little bit of it or maybe use it as users maybe even lost some money in, in different components and another 10 years. And you are going to have truly a generation of politicians start emerging where like they have played with crypto and the number of people who've used it is going to go like has gone up. Maybe you get more rational um, 
like discourse at that point. But for right now, I would say the government's going to be just doing stuff like <laughs> like it won't even seem rational at all. But I'm with you like that the, the directly anti-crypto commentary and like the negative comments uh, by Senator Warren regarding SVG and Silvergate and stuff like to for them to openly attack a bank for supporting crypto. Um, I think that's unheard of in the um, banking and finance space. Largely. I mean, also like, like Signature Bank is like, was like, like the, like one of the biggest affordable housing lenders in New York state. Right. And so like, oh, really? it was a very like affiliated with like traditional progressive uh, um, outcomes. Yeah. So, like, so you're saying that they're politically lined even with them. Yeah, they were politically aligned and just like completely thrown under the bus. Interesting. Which yep. is just interesting. Yeah. Like really. And not only that, I, but I like mean, I, I honestly don't think that like I think like I mean I, I, I it like it was it was stupid of the government to allow Silvergate to fail. It was stupid of the government to like uh to sort of dick around with getting letting SVB be acquired, it was stupid of the government to to like cause signature to fail. Um, like all of these things are not in general wise decisions. On Even the, SVG, on the part of I would imagine, politically aligns more with the Democrat Party in terms of a lot of the people that lend and borrow off of them, since they're I think what since they're California based, and a lot of that crowd tends to be sort of like that maybe progressive crowd. I could be completely wrong, but like I would yeah, think yeah, that the I political mean, alignment was negative for them, but they probably figured, you know what? We're not losing these voters anyway. Who gives a shit? Like we could do whatever because these are people that are gonna vote for us no matter what. I don't know. Yeah, I mean I yeah, I don't know. I mean I yeah, but it was like honestly, yeah, I mean I think this is the most like the like entrepreneurial tech class has felt explicitly politically disfavored by Democrat elites in history. Yeah. And it's interesting because like a lot of the so-called issues with everything from like, I don't know, election manipulation and other tech things tended to favor the left compared to the right. Uh, as far as I can tell, uh, whether it was like the Twitter drama or the Facebook things and whatever, um, all of those different things. So it's interesting that like, they'll go against tech in this scenario because like that's sort of their base in a way. So like, I guess you could argue that's either maybe that's good that they're willing to go after their own base for, for shenanigans, or maybe it's unusual. I don't know. I'm not sure what to think about it all. It's very strange. Yeah. What it would like, I mean, do you think like just generally though, there's that, like, what about the moral hazard argument? Cause like at this point, if like FDIC insurance caps don't matter, like some at some level or the other, a government will step in no matter what. Like, why even have the cap on it at this point? It's like you're you're if you're big enough, they'll come and save you. If you're not, your bank's sort of not good enough. Then therefore, you should move your money to the big bank. So, like that's the message. I mean, there's there's like there's like a there, yeah. I mean, there's a there are layers and layers of it. You know the banking system is is poorly defined and like this idea and like moral hazard is is difficult to detect i do think you know it's it's pro, it's it's net better for like the execs and the equity holders in the bank 
to get wiped out. But as we see with today, with basically you know, dozens of banking stocks halted, um, you know, it, it creates side effects. But like the bigger problem has been, you know, yeah, like most, has been most like people the, when they put their most people when they put their money in a bank, they're not expecting that they're buying a stock, right? That they're assuming that their cash is there when the time comes, and that's where the problem comes in. Like there is well, an interesting thing that I think the general public generally just misunderstands what a bank is and it's funny how like they'll come after crypto for like you know scammers and miseducation and god knows what else but the reality is like the entire system to some extent is like a confidence scam at some level which is very weird to me um i don't know but at the same time the alternative would be you have a government-run bank that, that, that the fed is your bank and that's the end of it but then that has consequences if we have a bad regime or in the future, like sets up a totalitarian lever system that is a lot easier to like, you know, throw the switch. So that's the downside of having a fully government run bank, I guess. So it's like, there, but there's no answer that like fully answers everyone's problems. Like it's just no, yeah, you, I, I don't you, think you, there's a perfect you, system. Well, okay. We were like the, I mean, like the, like, okay. So like general, like interesting things I've read uh, about the banking system. It's like, one, is that like the U.S. government needs savings to be converted into holding treasury bonds to fund the debt. Like, there's no way. Like, so the government needs needs to live in a world where um, where like, where like, wherever people are holding their savings, they're, they're a significant fraction of them are held in treasury bonds. And so if we're like living in a world where um um and the government would you know frequently generally prefer to like have like longer uh uh, uh dated treasury bonds than shorter dated treasury bonds and so someone needs to be able to be like lending long and uh uh or, you know uh, or you know taking short-term deposits and lending long like they they it, it's very to the government's advantage to do this but, you know, it's also like, did the federal, like the federal reserve has been really like, you know, I, my general point of view has been like, basically since pandemic started, the federal reserve seems to have not really been, has been taking all kinds of extraordinary measures. And then like, not really thinking like three steps ahead of like, oh, like we do this security measure, then like, what happens if, um, you know, and like the idea that like the Fed the Fed has the tools to bring inflation under control has always has always been to me like extremely skeptical. Like the the Fed doesn't have the tools to deal with like deglobalization, a land war in Europe. Like these are just like not tools that right. the Federal or, Reserve or like or like what AI like the exact implication like of what maybe tech does in terms of deflation, for example, is not fully always understood either. Like the magnitude effect, you might have some idea that some certain things could cause inflation or deflation, but the magnitude effect and the timing are really, really hard to predict for sure. Like take AI, for example. Yeah. It could be extremely deflationary to, to labor, right? Um, if like I can have an AI do like 50% of what I do on a daily basis, because like a lot of my knowledge work could easily be replicated, which I'm sure 50% could be like, it's probably an understatement in my particular field. Um, like, I think that could get there. Does, so what does that mean for like the, the cost of labor for people in my particular field? It may, may go down relative to everything else. 
that could be bad for me as a like career thing. But uh, like that, but that effect, like on the the labor environment across, let's say, the Western world, is that going to be something that plays out over three years? Is it going to be something that plays out over the next ten more forever? Like, and to what magnitude? Like, is it going to happen instantly? Where by you know two years from now, like there's a fifty percent reduction in the amount of labor needed to do like knowledge tasks? I don't know. Like, so the problem is like them predicting this. Um, just an example of AI. I have no fucking clue what it's going to do it to my own profession in like a year or two years, much less what I'm going to do with like the national interest rate, like to try to, you know, curtail a problem. So this idea like that the Fed can see the future, clearly they can't. Like no matter how much data they have, the biggest impact effects, whether it's block swans or uh, technological effects, the disruption piece makes the thing almost unpredictable entirely to me like like for example the the covid scenario and everything else right like we could have another pandemic whether it's like you know accidental or or maybe a bio warfare or any type of thing could happen any day like of the year right like that can happen anytime are we prepared for an, an event financially or otherwise let's say worse than covid probably not like we're, it's not looking so good so we're really really fragile in, in many ways. And um, the Fed doesn't really solve that fragility, right? It's like, that's kind of my thinking in my head. Yeah. And it's just that, well, I think US policymakers are like too used to the, too, like, too used to the Fed being the thing that can respond quickly to whatever is happening. So, oh, we have a pandemic or we have a war or we have whatever. Like the thing that like can like respond quickly to some change in the situation of the world is the Fed. Like the Fed can turn this one number, interest rates. You know, there's this you know, there was like the joke that was going around during 2020 in the pandemic where there's like a, an asteroid hits the earth and like what is what's the immediate response? The Fed lowers interest rates, right? Like exactly. it's, it's not the right tool. <laughs> it's not the right tool for dealing with it's not the right tool for dealing with uh, pandemics. It's not the right tool for dealing with the war. Um, you know, we we are we are relying on the tool, and then there's all this like second order effects, and then you have like the ability for politicians to intervene conveniently in the economy in the midst of it uh, by being like, "Oh, you're politically disfavored because crypto is disfavored right now." Okay, your bank needs to close. Yeah, like, and, and you'll never get rid of that political layer exactly unless you want robots to run our lives. So it's like when people sort of like blast politicians for whatever it is that they do, whether it's the left, the right, the center, the libertarians, whoever, at the end of the day, when people don't trust people entirely, what they're saying is indirectly is, and by the way, there's no perfect system of people I've ever met in any institution doing anything. So like it's it and and all and I have a general rule that all people are hypocritical about something they care about like they they claim to care about it but that's that's one hundred percent of everyone I've ever met either in a magnitude or a time uh, effect there everyone's hypocritical about something or or everything at some level so to me it's like there's no perfect system and like representative government and the political layer represent a way to like pervert preserve some form of representation although highly imperfect. Um, in many ways, but there is no perfect system. Um, and the version of the world that's like AI plus CBDCs to me is like 
yeah, the system will create the perfect system based on some economic or incentive alignment problem. But that doesn't mean it's going to be aligned for like the majority of human beings at some level, right? Like, it's like a funny problem. So like th these problems, I think, need accelerated attention. And I think why Elon Musk in particular has this like existential dread that he's been tweeting about, which I'm in the same boat as him looking at what it does, is that this connection where like finance and AI come together and you combine that with things like CBDCs and things like that. And you really have what I sort of in my head have termed like the machine language totalitarian state um, where slowly the control levers that human beings have over the system will slowly slip away. Where like, um, you know, people claim they want the trustless system, say, for example, Bitcoin, but realize like materially speaking like bitcoin doesn't care if you're human or necessarily like if the human race exists or not and this is true potentially for the ai alignment problem which is a really really deep problem that like bostrom and others talk about and like crypto plus ai are like colliding with cbdc's and this together in a way that like if you look at what's happening with china um it's becoming increasingly concerning that it slips into like a type of weird like machine totalitarian state especially if you like tie incentive measures in terms of like cbtc's and like let's say you want to make oh well zucky's a little bit too fat he needs to lose some weight um you can't use your cbdc money to buy as many like you know burgers and mcdonald's as you once did um so we're going to put like limits on that so that we don't have as much healthcare expenditure or something like that so the machine starts optimizing right it starts sort of like going in circles optimizing and tweaking and um, the, the incentive alignment for the AI and how it can quickly move, like, you know, like adjust these things uh, can be breathtakingly fast. So on the one hand, it's like you have the hidden hand of the human race. You have like the Fed punching numbers on a machine and like turning dials and interest rates and whatever. But at some level right now, like libertarian ire against the Fed is based on the fact that they're a central control measure and people don't like it. I'm wondering what happens when like the central control measures become automated and people are going to feel like um, it's not even human beings deciding this. Are we actually going to be better off or not? I think people are going to revolt against this sort of thing. And I think it's going to be very tricky. And we may, and if it gets too late where we have actually built these systems too deeply, it makes it almost impossible. Because if you're in China right now and you don't like the Chinese party for some reason, like the Communist Party, and um, you, let's say, have a CBDC, and they've been strongly advocating for like um, increasing the amount of people using their CBDCs and such. But like, let's say you don't like a person, or the system decides it doesn't like you because you maybe held up a protest sign somewhere, and they picked you up on camera. You could just basically lock the person's CBDC-based wallet whenever you feel like it. So long before you have the chance to protest, you're going to starve to death because your money is going to be based on these control levels levers so like you don't have to use your imagination very long and you wait you say wait a minute composability has consequences and that consequence is you can hand it over to um robotic systems that you know the programmers that produce them are going to be have good intentions they're like we want everyone to be a good communist and then what happens when you're not a good enough communist and it comes after you by the time the politicians realize this what ends up happening is is you've already had like a communist optimized system and everyone's that's not a perfect communist, which, by the way, no human is perfect anything. Now you're a target for the system, which is uh, like, which is a crazy kind of chilling sort of thought. But 
like Orwell did not really fully consider what happens when AI fully takes this over um, the level of dystopia that can happen. So like all of that makes me quite nervous. And I think what bothers myself, I think it bothers Elon Musk too, is that like when he talks about regulation for these things, it's like the concept of putting these things on the radar of politicians and helping them understand that like the amount of fuckery that can go on is breathtakingly bad, right? Like it's not like a little bit bad, it's existentially bad. And like the, I think that's partly my, my theory is like, I'd, ha, I'd be interested in asking him directly, but like my theory is that part of the intuition uh, Elon had for taking over Twitter wasn't because of like just the general free speech concerns he had. I think he needs a, a messaging platform for when like AI related problems occur, which they'll happen quite quickly, like some way to communicate with lots of people by someone who knows what the fuck they're doing. Like, it's really like, if you look at the politicians in action, Zucky, like you look at how they respond to these crypto issues, really, really blunt and not really having a good understanding of what's happening, I think, in many ways, or the possible benefits, right? I think he's worried that like, with crypto and with AI, like the the regulatory regime and the government really doesn't have the like knowledge base or the tools to understand this fast enough to be reflexive enough to handle the type of crises that can actually happen. And they're coming quicker and quicker. Um, so yeah, it, that makes me particularly nervous. I don't know if you've read Zaki, have you read Bostrom's book already? Superintelligence or, um, you, have you checked that out? I'm familiar with like, uh, uh, like AGI alignment issues. I don't think I've read Bostrom's book, but I was familiar with his work. Like, I don't know. I was, I, I used to be very into all of this, uh, <clears throat> the like sort of the theory stuff you mean um yeah um um yeah like i'm uh in the longer run i'm um uh like uh i it like i used to be very like okay like hard takeoff we should worry about ai which is like very become very like cliche in tech circles I don't know. I become less enthusiastic about like, oh, like we should prepare for like, 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 you know, hard takeoff is the concern. Um, and like more concerned with like, you know, again, like, yeah, the kinds of issues you're talking about, AI totalitarianism. To, to um, some extent, I've, I'm sort of like in Elon's camp in the sense that like, uh, maybe like understanding it well enough, I'm like, okay, fuck it. I'm just going to have to live with it because it's obvious the human race like, is going to make lots of mistakes. It's obvious that we won't be able to control these things. And to me, I've, I don't know, maybe like it's a refreshing view in my head and that like, fuck it, I can't do anything about it anyway. It's like the sun coming up tomorrow or whether it does or doesn't, I don't have control over it. And to some extent, I don't let it like ruin my like outlook on the world. But at the same time, like, you know, I'm not like some kind of doomsday prepper or some bullshit either, right? Like I'm not like, but at the same time, I'm, I do think about these things from like where crypto goes with this. I think about it from where society goes with it. What I'm going to do with my children, like what am I going to tell them to do to like maybe prepare? And I, and I actually train lots of doctors for a living um, and how it's going to impact quite palpably their actual future. Um, I, I think you probably noticed this in programming circles too, and coding and everything. Like it's going to have an effect, like almost assuredly, um, and it's already having some. 
but um like i have to think about it from a more a very real like very impactful effect on even my bottom line income wise from for what i do which i know a lot of can be replaced right so that like I, to me it does have material consequences i guess the way to say it I, so i do think fairly deeply about it um not just as a hobby but like kind of so like i've got to present a to our medical school for example the like where i think like ai is going in healthcare for example um and i think there there's a lot of interesting alignments between what crypto does what what um and composability and those kind of things as well as like what ai can do and um there comes a point after which like it just feels like a black cloud not not quite like a, a screen that you can't see behind right it's like a it's like it's what it's why i guess that Kurzweil calls the singularity it's like this point after which it's like you no matter how hard you try to imagine what that future is going to look like it's like you can't fully wrap your head around it. it's just too complicated so to me it's like i have a nihilistic in a sense like streak where i'm like all right fuck it like whatever happens happens and you know like i'm not going to solve for it anyway like why should i sit and dwell upon it too much right but at the same time it's like mm, it's interesting how little anybody in politics cares about what's about to happen i find it to be like it'd be like the meteor that's just in your sky like you're just looking at it coming down you're like oh look at that look at that that's kind of cool but like you know you'd be like targeting missiles or figuring out how to make the asteroid move or whatever but in this case like it's honestly like nobody gives a fuck almost like, yeah, chat GPT got popular or whatever, but man, like it's, it's one of the weirdest feelings to see like, wait, I know it's cliche. It's like people say, well, does anybody like, nobody's thinking about this or whatever. Sure. People are, I think the quiet is because nobody knows what to do, right? Like there's no prescription for what to do differently about our lives or anything. It's fascinating. So to me, like watching Silvergate and all these, um, banking things and watch how regulatory reacts how they reacted to the covid thing all of that to me is an experiment in like uh social media and government reactivity lately in terms of how they can handle a problem like this and i have zero confidence we're going to do well from that perspective and government regulatory it'll be like definitely too late by the time anything's sorted out but anything preemptive you'll sound like some kind of like sky is falling cassandra type person right no, I don't know. Yeah. I, I would, yeah, I would, I like largely agree with this. I think the, like, I don't know. Like, I also think that, like, I see a lot of, like, availability bias in, like, chat GPT. Like, like oh, chat sure, GPT, sure. like, suddenly, like, was like, oh, like, you know, like LLM technology, you know, like if you follow like tech has like, like improving, like was, has definitely been like a hot thing for at least the last like three or four years. And it was suddenly like, oh, chat GPT, like what did it do? It like made it available, especially to like the kinds of people who write like newspaper articles and to people who are like politicians to be like, oh, I'm like experiencing something. And it's like, it's, it's like both useful and, and uncanny. Um, Although to some extent, like technology is always like that, right? It's like, it's there, it's there, it's there, and nobody gives a shit. And all of a sudden you have this availability bias for sure. But like once that's happened, 
the world never quite feels the same again. Like, remember, like, I don't know if you were around when like the first PCs came out, you're like, holy shit, look at this thing I have on my desk and look at the shit it does. I don't know if you remember when like the first laser printer came out and it's like, holy shit, look at this thing. Like, this is awesome. Um, or like, I don't know, any number of technological innovations, like it takes a bit to sink in, but like, man, like the nineties internet was basically nothing. And look where we are now. Right. So like, it's, it's sort of like creeps in on you. And it just pervades culture, right? Like we were hoping crypto would pervade culture by now. I would say crypto has been in some ways, like if you look at Bitcoin price action, it was quite exponential compared to say, for example, maybe the initial market cap of gold or whatever. But things in some ways have slowed down, but in like something like AI, man, you can imagine everybody will want to use it for something or another at some point, right? The, the, you don't have to explain to someone why you'd want to maybe use like a language model or something like they'll get it when they start playing with the different features. So I think like, it's not just availability, but it's like some things are just much more viral in there. Like, like the, 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 like how fast they get used, whether it was Instagram or whether it was like smartphones and all that. And the speed with which things can go viral, obviously is much faster. Now, if you just look at like the rise of TikTok and stuff, but this just feels different to me. Um, and I was around for when like email became like, you know, much more popular. I had my 8086, you know, like computer sitting on my like desk. I was like, <laughs> I've seen like the whole arc of like personal computing, smartphones, internet, the works. And this feels different than all of that. This feels like, I don't know, like the invention of electricity to me. Like it's very different. Uh, mobile internet. Mobile internet felt like this to me. Like yeah, having was big. like yep. good internet on your phone um, felt like this to me. Like the first time you experienced having good internet on your phone uh, where it was like, oh, oh, I can like, I no longer have to be bored or lost or any of these things. I do think, yeah, I mean, I do think that LLMs are, you know, like tangentially close to that kind of that kind of capability, right? Where it's like, oh, like this is, though I, I'm not a big LLM user. Like I know a lot of people who have like, who've been using it for like a lot of their writing and stuff like that. And I haven't. I think it to, to me, like it's a democratization of programming, Zucky. Like if you think about it, like I've got a lot of data on my systems at work. Um, and in order to get like systems that are existing, I have to get a developer to change like how it functions. I have to, I don't know if everybody wants it to function that way. So like if I ask for a piece of series of data, I want the last three days of this value. And I want to say it in English without having a lot of like, and I want to save that as a macro in the future if it gives me good results, right? I can be a programmer just by knowing English, right? I don't actually have to know how to create a button that does this, nor do I have access in the first place to a lot of those systems. So this is like a, to me, like opening up like a huge ability for the average user to do stuff with their information that is going to be vastly more useful than it has been so far. And in healthcare in particular, it's, it's going to be extremely obvious how useful it is. Like I can come up with it, like literally a hundred plus simple things that any doctor would want to use, for example, that isn't possible now, not necessarily because it's impossible to generate like a programming algorithm to do it, but because the implementation time, you know, goes over years and years and years. Whereas with this, like, all I have to do is have like, oh, look at my records and check through all these records and see if someone's had this, this and this. 
and it goes through and like reviews them all and then flags the ones I care about. And I can do it in English. That's the, that's the difference. Like the biggest problem for many people who are like, let's say in different professions who are not technically proficient is how to get the system to do what the fuck they want it to do. Even if you have the right buttons already there, a lot of people don't know what to do with it, right? Whereas this is a very different thing in usability. Um, like I was just pointing out, like you don't even need AI for a lot of the things I do. All you need is like slightly better um, workflows. And if the system, like I can ask the AI to create a workflow for me, the AI doesn't have to be there every day. It just needs to create that workflow that like that little bit of like data aggregation and save that as a small program. And next thing you know, like I don't need the AI anymore either for that particular task. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's interesting how like you don't need constant AI processing power a lot of the time for this. It just becomes like a little programmer for you, which like, I can see dozens of use cases for this immediately, like right now. And I think those are coming. And um, so like people really need to be prepared for this in their work, like their workflows and like anything, anything that's an information management field. So like, yeah, and, and I think crypto has a huge role to play in this, man. Like it can be a, a, a danger too, in a sense, because if you have a layer like Bitcoin, right? And you have a series of AIs that are running on a decentralized network, you can make them theoretically unstoppable and they can basically bot trade their way, you know, using a little sommelier vault, <laughs> like, to, like to basically make money and run spontaneously. Um, and make it even harder to shut them down. So when people want immutability and they want systems that can't stop, you really have to be careful what you're asking for, right? Because now you're creating literally an unstoppable system <clears throat> with a base financial layer that it can oh. use without censorship, right? It's a weird problem. Fortunately, we have validators that are in the mix in Tom. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Uh, who can be like, no, I'm not listening to the spot that is destroying the world anymore and passing its signals through the system. Um, but uh, yeah, anyways, I need to run. <laughs> yeah. uh, we've been, yep, we've been on too. for a while. Get to work. Cool. Yeah, it's been fun. It was great chatting. Yeah, Thank you for hosting this. This was lovely. Yep, hopefully everyone learned a little bit of something. Yeah, check out Sommelier. Uh, there's some tokens available like through Kepler Wallet, whatever, via Osmosis, if you want to play with that. Um, again, like I don't have any specific skin in the game. I just want to learn how it works and uh, maybe try to use it and play around and see what it's capable of doing. Um, certainly, it's better to learn about these things in a bear market um, <laughs> as yeah. opposed to like chasing these uh, things. Yeah, yeah, try out so, real yield yeah. and the other strategies on song. Yep. It should be pretty easy for everyone to try. So, yep, yeah, play around. See if you like it. Let us know what you think. All right, man. Good catching up with you. We'll, we'll hopefully talk later. Bye. Thanks for checking out another episode of The Ether. That was Achepe Space, the Somalier deep dive featuring Zaki. Recorded on Monday, March 13th, 2023. For TerraSpaces.org, I'm Finn. Thanks for listening. If you want to keep listening, head on over to terraspaces.org slash donate and show some support, yeah.
Waking up like a basement dweller Stepped out the door and her place is yelling 2020, what an ugly shit show Staring at the fucking rig roll from the get-go Looking outside, the whole state's on fire The fuck do you expect when you embrace the liars And replace the writers with AI just like us Emaciated models killing bright birds First in, last out, picture me rolling The worst time to cash out, so what you holding? The Merc's gonna cash cow country stolen Drooling over chicken like the goose is golden Trying to be so full, spitting that molten Lava from the bottom of the caldera I'm hot and gonna put it in a bottle And offer it to the god who hit the gas full throttle Blasting off in a rocket The many people who will, will see things happen to them That are in their favor Tell someone's looking over me. That's a that's a fascinating phenomenon when that happens. And what, when you analyze those situations, what you find is is that we as humans simply have a profound inability to understand statistics and probability. Stitching these writings, living that life like who would have guessed you turn out this nice, right? Avoiding stress, that's the motherfucking secret. Print that shit on a motherfucking leaflet. I'm just an asshole hooked on the bricks. Looking at the rectangles, damn, they kinda thick. We've gone through a whole lot of kings here. Cutting off heads just to bring cheer. Getting all fired up, Tiger King, line them up when you give an arm and a leg just to try the junk. On some first time buyer's luck, Alexa, set a reminder and remind me to buy a bunch. And put your hands up if you fuck this year. And keep them in the air if you're picking up the spare. And put your mask on just to go outside. Looking at the planet about to downsize. So, climate change will not make Earth. Basically, every other coastal city that we've spent thousands of years building uh, in the, since the dawn of civilization. Ten spaces. <laughs>